Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough with the Lone Star Policy Institute. Our guest today is John Gabriel, who is the editor-in-chief at Ricochet, uh, which we'll talk a little bit more about uh, later. He's also a contributor at the Arizona Republic. Uh, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. So I want to talk about the most important issue facing the nation today, uh, which is, of course, the ballot of Buster Struggs. But <laughs> before we get that, let's talk about something which is comparatively unimportant, which is Twitter. So this has been a big week on Twitter. Various people have been banned or unbanned. There's hunger strikes going on. I guess there's this woman, what's her name? Laura Loomer? Right. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, I, I will confess, uh, so she, I guess, got banned for some reason from Twitter and responded by literally chaining herself to the door of the Twitter headquarters in some sort of public protest. I'm vague, I was vaguely familiar with this person. I, I had heard her name, but always in the context of, you know, there, there are certain people on the internet that the only time you ever see tweets from them or or whatever is when someone else is retweeting something stupid that they said. So I don't know how consistently stupid this person is. I, I do know that the only times I've ever heard of her were because she had said or done something stupid, including this Twitter protest thing. Is that still going on? Uh, no, she, um, I guess, got tired of it uh, because Twitter handled it perfectly. They said... Oh no, she can stay there as long as she wants. Yeah, uh, <laughs> <laughs> kind of took the wind out of her sails. And uh, so, um, I think in the early evening last night, uh, so Thursday night, she uh, asked the uh, policemen who were hanging out near her, not harassing her, just like, just let us know when you want us to cut you out. And she's like, okay, I'm ready. They released her. It was uh, a, a real Rosa Parks moment. Uh, my favorite Laura Loomer story is when she protested. It was some like Senate subcommittee on technology or something, and she was sitting in the back and she decided to scream out in protest of being banned from Twitter. First off, never care this much about Twitter, folks, ever in <laughs> right. life. Uh, they're, you know, find a good friend, uh, get a dog. There's other things to care about. But uh, she started screaming and interrupting, and I think he might have been from Texas. I can't recall his name. A representative, former auctioneer, who started um, bidding her cell phone that she was using to record herself and everything going on in the proceedings. So nobody could hear her, but everybody was applauding the representative who uh, was doing the auctioneer bit. So it, it's a shame that she's not on Twitter anymore. Yeah. Uh, so that uh, representative was uh, the aptly named Billy Long. Uh, oh, that's right. Yes. Yeah. But he's from Missouri. He's not from Missouri. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that was uh, that was a bit strange. I had assumed that part of the reason why she was so upset about being banned was uh, that she was making a lot of money through Twitter and online media presence or whatever. But I, I looked at her Patreon and it's like at nine hundred dollars a month. So so I don't know. Uh, I would hope she has some other source of income. Uh, <laughs> yeah, especially living in New York City, that's enough for your latte budget, I think. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So it does seem like, you know, one of the 
consistent topics on Twitter now is who's getting banned or who's not getting banned. It's really been like this a whole succession of people. I guess uh, Jesse Kelly, who's a contributor at The Federalist, was banned and then unbanned. And it's not quite clear what happened there. Alex Jones, of course, was banned this summer. And, you know, I guess it goes all the way back to Milo, if you remember him. <laughs> right. So, I mean, what, what do you make about all this, like, consternation of, and, and you know, I, it's like, obviously, there are broad, you know, there are the specific cases that people go on and on about, but then there's also, like, broader issues of free speech and what kind of platform is Twitter and is it discriminatory against right of center people? so on and so forth. But what's your perspective on all that? Well, I've been on Twitter for about 10 years, and it used to be a lot of fun. Uh, you would find people of similar interest, and they tended to be kind of intelligent and funny, and I have all these weird esoteric interests, you know. It'll be some weird policy thing I care about, followed by some weird music I'm into, followed by, you know, whatever, somebody who lives in my local area or something. And you could find um, a lot of similar uh, people to yourself, and it consisted of a lot of jokes and breaking news, and that was about it. And now, in the past couple of years, it's really been weaponized by both sides, just people just screaming at each other. So I um, kind of – it wasn't even intentional, really. I thought of deleting my account because it's like I really have better things to do with my life. But I decided, no, it's good, especially if I have a story you know, that I want to promote and I still want to know what's going on breaking news. I should stay on here. Uh, I still have a few friends uh, that I've met kind of, you know, pretend internet friends, as I call them, <laughs> that I met on Twitter. And, uh, you know, so there's still some good people there. But earlier, like at the start of the year, it's just like, I really need to catch up on my reading. And I've been spending a lot of time in books. And I'm like, it, it's funny, because I'd finish one book. And then it's like, oh, I'm going to check Twitter. And I would scroll through about three tweets and go, this is a drag. And then I'd go back and start the next book. Uh, my daughters are in, uh, we have very good uh, school choice initiatives here in Arizona. So my daughters both attend charter schools and uh, they're reading all the classics that I slept through basically in high school. So I'm desperately playing catch up and I'm not caught up to them yet, but I, I don't want their old man to be revealed as the dummy that he is. But um, with Twitter, they're allowed to do whatever they want. You know, it's a private company. Um, I kind of approach it as they could ban me tomorrow, and so be it. It's their call. Um, and frankly, I'd probably get a lot more done in my personal life. But um, I, I think it really hurts them, and it hurts their platform to try to shut out voices. Uh, there's also the issue of just transparency. They don't, and this is probably, you know, their lawyers told them not to get in the weeds of why they decide to ban someone or suspend someone, get into too much detail. But the every person you get rid of on there, Twitter gets less interesting. And, and as you say, too, like Laura Loomer, she's, you know, half political activist, half performance artist, and she isn't my bag. But if other people like her, I would have no problem with her being on there. And uh, those of us, if you see something like the Billy Long incident, you know, that she was on Twitter, it, people could laugh and if they don't like her or cheer her on if they like her. So I would like a big, weird mix of people on there. I'm fine with that. Um, you know, if roles were reversed and I was running the place, I would say the more the merrier, you know, the the uh, kind of the oddballs are the ones that make it interesting. And I don't care if they're on the left or the right. Once you start banning people, you start saying, well, you banned this guy for saying this and what you have a lot of now. And it's it's a fair point is, but Louis Farrakhan, who's constantly saying hateful things, he's on your platform and that's OK. And you get rid of Alex Jones 
for conspiracy theories. Like, well, he has conspiracy theories too. So once you start down that road, you can't really defend it unless basically you're devoting half the Twitter staff to just policing and patrolling and banning people. You know, I, I think they should just kind of let it fly, but that's a measure, that's an issue for their company. It's not my call. Well, and there's, uh, I think the thing that I'm finding surprising is how many conservatives who are normally very pro-free speech, free markets, uh, seem to be calling for the government to step in and regulate this. Like, well, there has to be equal time for uh, for conservatives. And, you know, back in the day when Rush was sort of at his peak, you know, that was the last thing that conservatives would have wanted was, uh, you know, equal time. But I, I was having a, uh, a Twitter exchange with Steve Salerno, and I don't want to mischaracterize what he was suggesting, but I think he was warming to the idea that, well, you know, things are gotten so bad with this Jesse Kelly suspension and these other suspensions maybe it's time the federal government steps in. And my response to that was, well, give the market a chance because, you know, I suspect there's going to be a bit of a consumer revolt and uh, maybe the consumers will flex their muscle and Twitter will have to respond. And it seems like that may have been what what exactly what happened since they reinstated Jesse. Yeah, I I agree completely with that. And the problem is with regulation is even if it's to uh – kind of hold Twitter to the fire a little bit, still it institutionalizes them as the social media site. Same mm-hmm. with Facebook. And we know how technology works. Um, it's shocking that both of these have lasted longer than a decade because you're always waiting for the next thing to knock them. You know, it's like King of the Hill. You're always waiting for the next uh, new tech upstart to knock them off the hill. And to a lot of extent, Snapchat kind of did it, Instagram before that. But there's going to be other technologies out there, and in a couple of years, we're probably – and this is no slight on Twitter. It's just the nature of technology. People are going to be, oh, remember Twitter? We'll talk about Twitter like we talked about MySpace. So I think if you get the slow grinding wheels of the bureaucracy um, trying to regulate and uh, enforce all these different rules on Twitter – you're going to institutionalize them. You know, um, I, I think that's why Mark Zuckerberg welcomed regulation because once the government starts uh, making legislation and calling out Facebook by name, they're kind of the big guy in the block and it's hard to get rid of them. And I, I would kind of like to see the big, ugly, creative destruction of capitalism and Silicon Valley just to keep things fresh and the next thing will be even better, hopefully. And then when that kind of fades away after five or 10 years, then the next thing will come up. Right. Well, I, I like what you said that, you know, if the rules are clear, um, that if, if, if Twitter wants to ban you, they certainly can. And I think that there's an argument to be made that if somebody calls for violence, say, for instance, if they wanted to uh, invoke a war of aggression against a peaceful nation, that that's probably actually a, a good grounds for uh, – for banning somebody permanently. And I just wanted to give you an opportunity to make news right here. Uh, don't you think that if a, somebody went onto Twitter and called, for instance, say, for an invasion of Canada, that'd be grounds for a uh, permanent suspension? Well, despite my sympathies for the idea, yeah, probably uh, that would be good. I, I just kind of want to move the border up a mile or two each year. And uh, before they know it, we'll have some a lot of new Tim Hortons and uh, access to new oil reserves. But, uh, yeah, if they um, are doing – and also like the ISIS groups that were organizing and enticing new members, especially in England and uh, migrant communities in Europe, and enticing them to join the fight, I can definitely see them saying, all right, this is this is too much. To I, was re- I was really hoping that you were going to say that, yes, Stephen Miller should be banned permanently. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I, yes, ban him because he has more followers than me. So <laughs> – 
can't answer that that question in a vacuum because the question is, you know, the the issue is, well, has Canada done anything to deserve it being invaded? And the answer there could probably be yes. They sent us Nickelback and Celine Dion. That's, <laughs> that's a pretext right there. So uh, I am perhaps a little bit more uh, sympathetic to some of these concerns in that, you know, when, when you had uh, Facebook displace My, MySpace or even before that was Friendster, uh, if you recall, as, as long as there is the, uh, within recent memory, the switchover of one company getting displaced by uh, another Perhaps that provides some sort of competitive pressure where these companies need to think, well, well gosh, we gotta we gotta shape up. The longer you have the same platforms just basically being kind of dominant, I think you start to wonder, well, you know, it you know, maybe they have some position that that can't be dethroned. Uh, and there ha- there have been a number of attempts to try and create alternative Twitters or alternative Facebooks that it would deliver a better uh, experience in different ways. Uh, most of them have kind of ended in failure. But even even like Gab, uh, which you know on the merits kind of seems like a, a Moss Eisley spaceport full of you know scum and villainy. Uh, you know they they try they did what you're supposed to do in this situation, which is you know okay if you get kicked off Twitter, we're going to make our own Twitter, and then uh, I guess they got their PayPal said that they weren't going to recognize them and ISP people were giving them problems. And so you start to get like, well, okay, you can have an alternative to one of these platforms if you create your own second internet and all that, (laughs) you know, you have to wonder like, are the, are the practical barriers of entry so high that realistically you can't have any competitors to these, these websites? I think it's tricky uh, with the competitive barriers. My concern is just that the government getting involved will raise them even higher. Yeah. And, um, I just think uh, the web and technology in general changes so rapidly. I think what will replace Twitter won't be like something like Gab or it's almost derivative of Twitter. I think it'll be a completely new model. Uh, good example, and I'm not on Snapchat. Um, I don't have the, uh, the guts to uh, take on another social media thing. But that's something that was different, a unique concept. And, you, you know, I talk, I have two teenage daughters and I chat with them and they're just – at this point, they're like, "Oh, Snapchat's lame. That's so. That's so last year, you know." So to them, they don't even think about. You know, they have Twitter accounts, but it's like, eh, I'll keep up with their friends or tweet about a band they like or something going on at their school, and they're done. Facebook, they've never even, you know. I remember, I think thirteen is the minimum age for Facebook, and I was like, "Okay, I'll allow you on the internet. You can open a Facebook account." And they're like, "Ugh." <laughs> do Facebook at all. So they're just like totally uninterested in it. So that's why I'm just thinking something new will come up, a new model, and it could be video-based, it could be image-based like Instagram, it could be a combo of all things. And I just think you're going to constantly have that roiling creative destruction because there's always someone in Silicon Valley with a bright idea. My concern about uh, government getting involved is just it, it tends to lock industries into amber. Um, you had that with GE was were big fans of the making sure we get rid of the incandescent bulb, at least restricted as much as possible. GE loved the idea because it made the barrier to entry so much higher. And I think a lot of politicians did it. Well, we want to save energy. You know, they they had they did it for good intentions. Uh, but what it did is any kind of upstart who had a new idea would never be able to crack the market. Okay, so I'm I'm going to give you opportunity for a little commercial right here because all right. Uh, 
so while it while it's not a social media platform, it's a it's a website. In some ways, it's kind of like a community. But so you know, Ricochet in some ways has kind of I want to say the opposite model of Gab uh, or something like or even Twitter. But as I've heard it described, you know, the the theory is that the way to get productive conversation on Ricochet is you can't do that much unless you're a subscriber, right? Right, exactly. And it was started by uh, Rob Long, uh, who is a head writer on Cheers, writes for yeah. <laughs> and Peter Robinson, the tear down this wall, Mr. Gorbachev speech guy. And they started it and just said, you know, if people have skin in the game, and I think the original price was, it was the price of a latte from Starbucks, you know, a grande latte from Starbucks. So it was like, close to $4. And it's pretty similar to that price. There's different tiers you get. But if you have a tiny bit of money and you don't have, because you're doing that, you don't have complete anonymity. You know, you can make your name, whatever you want it to be on there, but it makes kind of a community of people with similar ideas. And you agree to a very simple code of conduct. It's basically no profanity, no trolling, you know, the real basics of, of stuff and uh, it really just gathers people from all walks of life, and they just kind of loosely define it as center-right. But, uh, you know, you, you don't get the conspiracy theory-type people in there, um, but you do attract people who are intelligent and want to have engaged conversations about different subjects and uh, just talk about things, hash things out. You know, you'll have people with a libertarian perspective. Um, I kind of fall into that group. You'll have people who are, you know, supported really every one of the, what was it, 17 candidates in 2016 and argued those positions vociferously, but without trolling and hate and you're a monster and I'm going to, I'm going to stalk you at your place of work. You just don't have that kind of thing because it's all people who, um, you know, they kind of want to protect their reputation on the site as well if they want to convince people. Um, so it, it's a nice big group of people. We'll have people who work at, uh, a think tank in DC and uh, some of our best insights and everybody will say this is, uh, you know, we, we have a guy who's a concrete mixer, a guy who's a long range trucker. He recently retired from that. So you just get different perspectives from all sorts of people um, who pop in as they have time. Um, and we've really pivoted. Um, one of the early conservative podcasts was the main ricochet podcast. Now we have, I think 50 total um, some are politically based, some are policy, some are entertainment. So it's just kind of all across the board. So we've uh, been in that space kind of early, just trying to keep a good conversation going, unlike you get in comment sections and other places where it's just kind of a, a hellscape. You know, YouTube is a perfect example of that. All right. So we're new to this whole uh, podcasting thing and uh, we're kind of curious what, uh, I guess on two things, what what sort of advice would you give new podcasters, us and others, but also what are some of the wacky stories from your podcasting experience? Oh gosh. Um, yeah. Podcasts. I, I really enjoy them. Um, I got into listening to them uh, actually, the powers that be at Ricochet were trying to get me to do a podcast a long time. I'm like, do you really need another guy talking politics? And uh, so when we started ours, I kind of always take the position it needs to kind of alienate people. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, you're, whatever podcast you have, it's not going to be listened to by 90% of the Internet. And so the more unique your takes, and not like you're making up and trying to be outrageous – but the more unique, unique your takes or um, interests, I, I think that really adds to it, and people just find you. 
talk honestly and openly and don't try to repeat what you saw on, you know, talk uh, certain Whatever they're talking about on talk radio or in broadcast, you know, PBS shows, Sunday morning shows, if you're just repeating what they're doing, it's like, well, they have the ability to get more impressive guests and have higher production values. But um, some of my favorite podcasts are the most obscure, weird, sub, sub, sub interests of different things. You know, the history of Byzantium is one I get into. There's a BBC show which talks to academics about all sorts of just esoteric subjects. And I, I just, I love podcasting because you can kind of find your tribe that way by whatever weird little interest you have, uh, you can get into and people will end up finding you just by doing a search in the podcast. Um, I, I think the strangest thing is now that I do the podcast is people will recognize me from that rather than other things. And it's strange, even, you know, I'll, I'll meet people locally or when I'm in D.C., it's just interesting to see who knows you because Twitter, who knows you because you're a friend of a friend, who knows you because of the podcast, who knows you because you're writing. And so you just get a real mix of people who find you in different ways. So that, that's been a lot of fun doing that. Well, speaking of fans, uh, we were able to uh, talk with one of your fans that, that passes along this question. Uh, she is Kate Hyde of New York, and she asked you, John, if you could spend the day with either Jim Acosta, John Fuglesong, or Al Sharpton, who would you spend the day with and what would you do? Oh, gosh. Who, Jim Acosta. Oh, my gosh. This is deadly. Uh, Jim Acosta. Boo, boo Kate Hyde. I just want that for the record for Twitter later. Boo Kate Hyde. Um, man, that is tough. I don't think I could handle being around Acosta for long. Uh, John Fugel saying, would just talk into my ear nonstop about how real socialism has never been tried. And then he would quote himself tweets that he did in 2012. <laughs> um, I think Al Sharpton, just because he's been around a long time, and I don't know if I'd really enjoy it, but I get the sense he would be a good drinking buddy with a lot of crazy stories. So I'll go with Al Sharpton. Yeah, uh, so there was, there's a, decades ago, uh, in a in a different reality almost, Tucker Carlson wrote a article about this trip that he took with Al Sharpton and some other folks to, uh, I guess it was, well, it wasn't Liberia. It was uh, somewhere in Western Africa, another, uh, to try and negotiate an end to the Liberian civil war with Al Sharpton, who just kind of like showed up. It's a, it's a hilarious article and it makes it seem like Al Sharpton would, would in fact be a very fun guy to hang around with, notwithstanding the uh, history of yeah <laughs> of problematic statements and uh, problematic starting riots and all, all of that, but so so you may have made the right choice, is what I'm saying. So excellent. So well, I, I know that uh, uh, Marion Barry, um, who was it who did a great profile Weekly Standard, Matt Labash. And I was like, gosh, I don't want to read about Marion Barry. And it was one of the funny, well, Labash is a genius writer, but it's just one of the funniest stories. And it's just like, that would just be an experience that I'd be talking about for years, hanging out with Sharp. Well, I've got another question for you. So uh, Twitter changed its rules of service. And one of the new new uh, rules they have is that there's no dead naming. Um, and that's uh, when you call somebody by their former name. And, and I've noticed that your handle is xjohn, which may suggest that you don't want to be going by the name of John Gabriel anymore. So if we call you John Gabriel, is that dead naming? Totally dead naming. And I identify as a 14-year-old Asian girl right now. So <laughs> that, might, that could change next week. Um, yeah, that name, it, it was kind of strange. When I first joined Twitter, 
I was anonymous in that I didn't give my full name because I just worked in the private sector and it was, I usually work for very liberal organizations and corporations. So I was just like, yeah, they might not be thrilled at my takes on things. But I also had a small blog with a friend of mine who's also on Twitter, uh, Kevin Creighton. He's in Florida now. But we had a local blog, and we both lived in the exurbs of Phoenix, so we called it the Exurban League. And so my name originally, I think, was Exurban John. And back when Twitter started, it really depended. You really wanted the shortest name possible, so I shortened it to XJohn. So it makes no sense now, but I, I was just like, I was thinking of changing it to my full name, and people were like, ah, oh, no. You are what you are. Just stick with it. So I stuck with it. So I've got a, a question for you about, uh, a, I think it was one of the books you wrote. Uh, could you explain your uh, theory on how you can uh, achieve weight loss through visualization? <laughs> yes. I actually get a lot of questions, people emailing me for advice on how they can lose 312 pounds <laughs> in six months. Uh, yeah, there's another guy. I actually checked into him. That's one reason I tried to get myself verified, to try to get verified mm. before that dude. He's a diet guru. Uh, who does like some kind of self-hypnosis or something out of Australia. And I found out the jerk's real name isn't even John Gabriel. Gabriel is his middle name. He uh, lost a ton of weight. And I really think if I could uh, sell a few books with diety sounding names, I might get some big sales. Then they'll be very disappointed when it goes into uh, F.A. Hayek or something <laughs> when you get into the details. One one advantage of being named Josiah Neely is that there you don't have a lot of uh, competition in the name department. <laughs> there There is, I think, one other guy who is a few years younger than me that's named Josiah Neely who lives out in California or something. I, I feel bad for him because if you Google Josiah Neely, it's just it's all, all me. <laughs> so... Yeah, there are a few John Gabriels. There's actually one, and when he makes news, I usually retweet it, which just confuses people, but he is a basketball player in the Philippine Basketball League. Hmm. I've met a, a few Filipinos who have the name John Gabriel because they tend to have the Spanish surname, right. and I guess John is rising in popularity without the H, so I like to uh, tweet news about my basketball doppelganger, and people are like, what? You played basketball in the Philippines? I'm just like, well... John Gabriel. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to read a tweet to you and I want you to tell me who actually tweeted this. Our country is in a moment of crisis, decades in the making. America's middle class has been hollowed out. Working people have been betrayed and democracy itself is under threat. It's time to create a foreign policy that works for all Americans, not just the rich and powerful. Hmm. Sounds like someone who's running for president. Yeah. Or the president. I, I mean, it'd be hard to tell. Doesn't merit. Right. That's the thing with the new populism. I don't know because it could have been a Republican or Democrat. I will say it sounds like classic Bernie Sanders, but I'm not sure. That one's Liz Warren. I, uh, I, in fact, I made a comment about this today that if you read some of her tweets, the only thing you can tell, tell her apart from Donald Trump is uh, the grammar's better. <laughs> right. Right. Not as many exclamation points or all caps. So, you know, the, the term never Trump is thrown around a lot. And uh, when I was preparing for this, I, I went on to some of your websites and I guess you were so into never Trump that you actually created bumper stickers. Uh, yes, <laughs> so I, I've, I've heard Jonah Goldberg make the comment that never Trump was about the 2016 election. Uh, in your opinion, was never Trump about the 2016 election? Is it still relevant now? Is it going to be relevant in 2020? I don't get the point of it after the election, um, you know, and it was really started during the primaries um, and never Trump just meant 
okay, if your person was Rubio and he drops out, you'll vote for Cruz. If your guy is Cruz and he drops out, you'll vote for, God forbid, John Kasich. You know, it's just like we have to keep this guy out of office because we don't know what he's going to do. And I know immediately the day after the election, you know, there's a lot of people on Ricochet. There's a handful of never Trump people. Most people are like, nope, I'm voting for Trump. Some were skeptics. Some were all on board the mega train. But um, that really helped as well. Again, that kind of community that is across the center right, it it gets you out of the echo chamber of, well, this is what smart people think, and they're voting against Trump. It's just like, no, there's people with all sorts of different perspectives who are smart, bright, and they've come to different conclusions. So it's great to read about it. And so immediately after the election, I was just like, man, you guys uh, <laughs> kicked butt. You got Donald Trump elected. Not only did he beat everybody in the GOP field, he beat Hillary Clinton for crying out loud. So congratulations. Um, I've never understood this kind of rearguard action of sniping at Trump while he's in office, it's like he's elected, you know? So what, what, how can you kind of influence him to do what you think is right? And I think for the most part, he's done it, especially a big concern for me was judges thinking, well, he doesn't really understand the Federalist Society and originalism and all this. So how can we trust him when even someone like George W. Bush was, you know, Harriet Myers and people that it's just like, oh gosh, what, who is Trump going to pick? But he's been fantastic on judges him and uh, cocaine mitch been doing a great job on this and his like foreign policy despite the hysteria it's tended to be conventional american policy with a rougher exterior you know not a lot of lofty talk a lot of not any diplomatic talk but in his actions he tends to be doing very similar things to what the foreign policy establishment has been doing i i think one issue with some of people who call themselves never trump still is they want to, okay, Donald Trump was kind of the original sin and we need to get rid of him to get back to what it was. And it's like, there's no going back to what it was. You know, you, you have to move forward. They're, the Republican Party 10 years from now will be different. He'll be off the stage and who knows who our primary politicians will be. But you need to adjust to that. And it was obvious. And I think immigration was a big issue. I live in Arizona and the fact that people in both parties would pass new rules for immigration but wouldn't enforce them, I think people just got fed up and just didn't trust them. And um, they just wanted to change. They wanted to sweep out the old system. And I think you see this among the Democrats as well, looking at how strong Bernie went. People are just like, you know what? We're, we're kind of tired of the people in power working together too much and bailing out their buddies and we just want a different perspective on thing uh, on things. So I, I just have never understood the point. How I am now, I guess I would call myself a Trump skeptic, but I'm a politician skeptic. I was skeptic of any Republican and certainly any Democratic president we've had. I don't really get the point of uh, just constantly sniping and demanding he be impeached immediately because if you want to see a backlash to the GOP from its base, that is – the king of all backlashes and you know who knows who we would get uh to replace donald trump they should have listened to their constituency more they should have listened to the base more should have taken those um those perspectives more seriously and they didn't and you know i wasn't thrilled about the guy getting elected um but when he does something awesome i'm gonna say that's great and when he does something bad i'm gonna say that's terrible so like a good a good thing that I wrote a column, and I think people get confused. I write every other week for the local paper, the Arizona Republic. It's called AZ Central, and their online entity. Criminal justice reform is the 
recent thing that I wrote about, and I try. It tends to be a Democratic leaning audience for that newspaper, and I was just like, "Hey, you can bash him all you want, but he's on the right side of this." And the people who have to get on board, people like Mitch McConnell, Tom Cotton, things like that, because this has broad bipartisan appeal, and not only that, it's the right thing to do. So that's something by his signaling his intent to help fix that, at least at least with his first step act, which is definitely just a first step. Um, I think that's great, and I wanna I wanna praise him. Um, for doing that, but I've been skeptical about every president we've had. He's no different to, for that. I have a theory that there is a division in among uh, what you might call never Trump conservatives or people who were never Trump conservatives between uh, the folks who didn't vote for Trump but also didn't vote for Hillary and the folks who said, well, Trump is so bad, you have to vote for Hillary. And the first group more or less kind of reverted to, I mean, they, they were conservatives before. Uh, they're still conservatives. They broadly think, yeah, Trump's done a decent job. They don't like the tweets, you know, some of the other statements or whatever, cringeworthy. Uh, whereas the, the folks who voted for Hillary, I, it seems like, Many of them have gone on to say, well, like the Republican Party in general is evil or has to be destroyed or, you know, in some cases like Max Boot or Jennifer Rubin, they're like, I have to change my views on every single issue in order to be able to more consistently oppose Trump. Uh, uh, it seems like that's that's kind of like a, a cleavage that wasn't necessarily maybe so apparent back in 2016, uh, but now this kind of charted two different courses. Yeah, and yeah, that's rather inexplicable. And something else, too, it just makes people doubt the judgment of people who, based on one personality, are willing to throw away their long, quote-unquote, long-held principles that they have said they're in favor of, and now are just like, oh, I'm willing to abandon all of that. Um, I think it really depends on if you are motivated by issues or motivated by personalities, and neither one is right or wrong. If you're motivated primarily by personalities, and I think Trump is uncouth and he doesn't have the correct experience to be the president, that's valid, but I still want my policies, my preferred policies, to be pushed forward. And, you know, Trump is not the death of the GOP. Um, he creates new challenges for it, but if we had elected really anyone on the roster in the primary, um, Jeb Bush is a good example. You would have a different kind of reaction to him where it's like, oh, it's always Bush or Clinton. Mm -hmm. And these insiders are always just trading the office back and forth. And you would have another kind of populist re revolt with that. You might have one in the suburbs. You might have one in the rural areas. Who knows? So uh, no politician is going to be perfect. Trump is certainly imperfect. But if all you care about is the personality um, I think you're constantly going to be a weather vane. It, it, it's just, um, I guess that's a good reason why I've never been terribly active in politics per se, you know, canvassing and campaigning and things like that. Because in general, I look at politicians as means to an end. What I care about is policy and let's make the best decisions to help the most people anywhere that we can. Josiah, do you have one of your wacky pop culture questions? Well, yeah. So I, I did want to talk uh, about holiday viewing or other, you know, I don't, I, I suppose uh, the Ballad of Buster Scruggs is not exactly a holiday movie, but it's, it's newly out. I like, I mean, uh, I'll get your perspective on it. I, I know you were tweeting about it. I liked it, although mild spoilers, when I, I started watching the movie knowing nothing about it. So I didn't realize that it was going to be a series of kind of short stories or whatever. I thought it was going to be the Buster Scruggs 
character throughout the entire thing. And, uh, you know, I was about maybe 10 minutes into it. And I was like, is this movie just going to be entirely him shooting people and then singing about it? Uh, and it turned out, no, that was not the whole thing. <laughs> Took a turn there. But I don't know. What what did you think about it? Well, I love the Coen brothers. And um, I had heard nothing but rave reviews from kind of the sophisticated set. Oh, this was perfect. This was genius. Um, I thought it dragged at points. Um but that's kind of almost the charm of Coen Brothers. You don't really know what they're getting at. There's always some kind of deeper philosophical take on whatever it is that they're talking about. In this case, kind of the tropes of the Old West. I'm very glad I watched it, but it definitely did drag in parts. Um, my favorite character was actually Buster Scruggs himself. And when he was gone, I'm like, no, I thought he would at least be introducing the different stories or, you know, popping into them somehow. Right, right, yeah. uh, but I like that actor a lot, Tim Blake Nelson. He doesn't get enough work. Uh, highlight for me, it was actually in one of the weakest stories, but Stephen Root was the bank teller. Yes. Anything Stephen Root is, I just love. And it also exposed me to other actors who I wasn't familiar with. Um, in the last story, and I don't want to give spoilers on it, John Joe Duncan? I can't recall his last name. I know his first name was John one Joe. The, he's like a, the one of the Reapers who is... Exactly. Exactly. He was fantastic. And um, the trail boss and the long, the longest one was the wagon train segment. Uh, the trail boss of that didn't have a lot of parts, but he was fantastic. So it's, uh, there, there's a lot of really good stuff in there and I'm glad I watched it. But, you know, I, I think I, I'm in no hurry to watch it again, which I am with many Coen Brothers movies. Well, is there anything else that's out there right now that you would recommend as good uh, holiday viewing or that you're expecting that's coming out? I know that I know that The Christmas Prince is uh, out on Netflix. I haven't had a chance to watch it yet, but yeah, um, I haven't seen that. And I've actually um, it, it's been so busy lately. It, it's kind of strange because sometimes I'll get totally into pop culture and other times I kind of pull back from it. And with my kids have been had just a very busy lives lately and school and extracurricular things and. So I have not been following it much the past month. I was thrilled that I finally got to see um, Buster Scruggs. Uh, one thing, and it's a month or two old now, but Norm MacDonald has a show, which is on Netflix. Yeah. And it's odd, and the questions are rambling and don't make sense, and it's wonderful from start to finish. Because he's just uh, – it was like the thrill of my life when he followed me on Twitter. I was like, I have no idea why you're following me, but he is uh, – just a fascinating guy because you never know where he's coming from. Everything's kind of off kilter and uh, it makes it far more interesting. I hadn't watched a like late night talk show in years probably because it's just kind of the format is established and you get the same kind of things, the same kind of guests. And his, he just had curious guests, uh, one old cowboy singer um, that he had on there. Um, it's just, and now I'm forgetting his name. Uh, Billy Joe Shaver, he had him on there. And it's just someone who would never get on a normal talk show who just has all these crazy stories of living in Texas and getting in gunfights. <laughs> and it's just just a lot of fun to watch. Yeah, I have small children. So the, the main thing that I watch on Netflix is My Little Pony episodes. <laughs> right, right. Well, that's the thing. When my girls were quite young – Everybody would say, oh, did you watch this show? Did you watch? I'm like, no. You know, it's just I don't want gunshots waking up my kids. You know, I remember I had to get headphones to watch Narcos when I watched that a couple of years ago because, you know, my kids, you know, older then, but, you know, kind of 10 to 12 are just waking up with automatic gunfire is not conducive to sleep. And you definitely can't watch it when they're in the room. So 
yeah, you, you definitely go through that void of uh, Disney Channel followed by uh, Nickelodeon followed by, oh, now I can watch my own stuff again. It was a pleasure talking to you, and I hope we can talk again soon. That sounds fantastic. Thanks, guys, and uh, good luck continuing with the podcast. Thank you.